0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: Well, Dennis, I want to thank you for um, allowing me the opportunity to um, to speak today. Preston uh, gave me this opportunity. Um, he is um, what I have uh, often um Called and said is my big brother in the program he has about um, as of now and I hope always has um, about 12 days Longer in sobriety as I do and so he really is my big brother and I'm grateful to Have this opportunity to share Um, My name is Kirkland A." My sobriety date is March 19th of 2017. I do have a home group. My home group is right here in Nashville, Tennessee, and is, there is a solution group, and we meet at 9 a.m. on Saturday mornings at West End Church of Christ, and would love for you all to join us. Anytime you're passing through Nashville, please come and join us. We have... Anywhere between 70 and 90 people, most Saturday mornings. We've got three different breakout meetings that that happen every single Saturday. We've got a closed discussion meeting. We have an early recovery meeting recommended for folks with 90 days or less. And we have a white book study. And then often we break out into a newcomer meeting or a first step meeting if that is appropriate. I do have a sponsor and I have five sponsees actively working the steps. Three in different states here um, and in two different countries. One of the greatest gifts of my weekend is when I get to work steps uh, over Skype with a sponsee in Iran. And it's just such a pleasure. My sponsor insists Um, as a condition of working with her that I hold service positions. And so I attend my home group's um, business meetings and I do serve as a GSR there. I work on the website committee for Intergroup. And I heard talk before the meeting about the July 2020 International Convention. And I am the hotel committee chair for the January um, International 2020 Convention that's going to be here in Nashville. So um, I'm right there with the budget and kosher meal planning, and we are in the throes of it. And that's a huge part of what keeps me sober, safe, serene, and pretty happy, joyous, and free today. So I am going to stick with the general format, this being my first Um, time at this group of what it was like, what happened and what it's like now Um, and so I'm going to just also begin with one caveat which is that as so many of us um, when we come into this program, my disease took me to pretty um, deep and dark bottoms and so if anything I say is Is triggering Um, we don't have the opportunity to raise hands in this meeting so um, of course you all can take care of yourselves and um, move phone away from your ears Um, so let me just begin a little bit about where I came from and who I was and um, what uh, contributed to um, the sexaholic I became I come from a family um, that genetically predisposed me to be an addict. You do not have to shake my family tree to get addiction. You've just got to walk by it. Um, apples will fall off of it, and you get mental health um, issues abounding. You get drug addiction. You get alcoholism. You get food addiction, anorexia, codependency. You get alanons on everywhere. And so I always have always wondered until I went to treatment for this disease, what was it that made me the only sexaholic and only sex addict? When I grew up in a family, and I'm going to get to what made me that, I grew up in a family very wealthy, very uh, old money. Um, what that contributes to is this We take care of our own problems. We do not share things that are wrong with us outside the family. And when my father separated from the family and asked my mother for a divorce when I was a small child, I did not feel as though I could talk to anyone about that pain. And so I learned to keep things bottled up when I was a really small kid. I saw my dad only on weekends and brief visitations after that. He was very rich. He was very powerful and very performance oriented. And the messages I got from him were never, I love you. Never, I'm proud of you. Never, um, you're okay the way you are, which was what I got from my mom. Um, So blessed to have that. But the messages I got from my father, the man in my life, was um, I will buy you these things if you perform well. Um, It was, you can do better if my marks weren't high enough. And I got silence if I had performed below a standard. And this set in pattern for me a lifetime of chasing after the affection of very wealthy very powerful men thinking if i can meet some performance standard they will like me they might even love me and that will finally get me the affection i lost when i was a kid when i was 11 i was introduced to sex by an older man, an adult male, um, somebody who was dating my mom. It, uh, I was held down. Um, actually, um, uh, things were tied around my wrist, and was introduced um, to anal sex at that time, and not uh, obviously not voluntarily. And so here was another um, high status male because he was the man that my mom uh, liked, my, and. And also very charismatic and strong, uh, strong male figure. And if I did not tell, if I did not, um, if I kept the secret, then I associated that with um, performing well. A few years later, I was introduced to, voluntarily introduced to oral sex by a boy I had met in youth group. And he was an older boy, home from military school, for the summer. And this performance, um, this sexual performance, got more deeply embedded in my brain. Over the ensuing years and decades, um, really decades, uh, two and a half decades, my disease progressed to pornography, anonymous sex, anal fetishism, bondage, masochism, I use chemicals to cross sexual boundaries, exhibitionism, and in its wake, my disease left behind it wreckage of more than um, 200 partners, four broken engagements, one engagement that did lead to marriage, multiple affairs, divorce um, lost careers um, tremendous amount of broken trust i have irrevocably harmed family members and friendships that i will uh, never be able to repair and to date I have uh, lost custody and am being sued for um, by my father and stepmother for um, termination of my parental rights, um, and they're trying to adopt my five-year-old kids. And those are um, consequences of the disease. What? led me into SA, and so as horrible as all of those things sound, without all of those, um, I never would have found my way into the rooms. Uh, Three years ago, right now, I was living in another state, still married to um, my ex-husband, and was in the midst of an affair with someone I work with. And I was on my way um, quickly out of that career, um, which I lost, soon to be divorced, um, soon to end up here in Nashville with my uh, small children. And so after losing that career, getting divorced, uh, my father and stepmother moved me over here to Nashville. And here in Nashville, I I had read a book, uh, a book trilogy that tied together all the ideas of romance and fantasy. It's very much sort of a a Beauty and the Beast fantasy combined with uh, bondage and sadomasochism. And for a girl who had grown up with ideas of romance in her head um, and a very dark, abusive sexual past, it was without a doubt the most toxic combination of fantasy to have in my head. And I began um, finding partners online through dating apps to um, to engage in these acts with. And um, two and a half years ago, Right now I began seeking out partners online in which to engage in these um, acts of bondage and sadomasochism and I was doing this with small children at home um, which is very scary behavior so as a single mom these were the acts I was engaging in and my behavior was crossing very dangerous lines. Um, And there were moments when uh, Dennis and I were talking before the phone call about somebody in his sponsorship lineage who we often talk about how our disease, um, he and I talk about how our disease took us to places where we have no illusion um, that it almost killed us. And where my acts of bondage and sadomasochism took me to places of near asphyxiation um, belts around my neck and and I had moments where I realized that it was more like a CSI film um, CSI scene than anything romantic Um, and and I got to the point middle of March of 2017 where I was both so terrified that I did not want to go on in what I was acting out, and I also realized that I could not cope with my life anymore, and the unmanageability and the secrets I was keeping, without continuing to find partners. And so, an afternoon, uh, March nineteenth, two thousand seventeen, I attempted. Um, I don't know if I really, I'd I say I attempted to overdose, but it was more accident than anything else. I just didn't care whether I waked up. And so with my toddlers down for a nap, I um, drank a huge glass of um, alcohol and took my normal amount of anti-anxiety pills, which uh, many people engaging in the X that I was engaging in uh, would need to cope with anxiety of life and ended up needing to go to detox and this was the first time i look back and see that god really stepped in and moved pieces around at least it's the first time i noticed him i now realize that he was moving pieces around to get me exactly to where i am and he uh god put me in a detox where the former medical director Of a treatment center that uh, treats individuals for sex addiction was on staff that night he's also a long time SA brother and he made sure that where I ended up in treatment was not just a chemical addiction treatment center it was a place that treats individuals for trauma and treats individuals uh, for sex addiction intimacy disorders and while I was there two weeks in The women of SA brought a meeting, and they introduced me to the concept of lust. They said, um, in our program, we do not work on sex. We have sexual sobriety, but we treat the drug of lust. And then there's a drug that we make in our head. It's a drug we make in our head when we're scared and when we're anxious and when we're lonely. And that's what we work our steps on. And it clicked, and for the first time, I realized that is my core drug. And I grabbed onto the program that day, and I got a white book, and I started working it. And I called the women immediately, and I got a sponsor. And when I got out of treatment, um, I started working my steps. I had a rocky road the first few months, I wasn't allowed to see my children for almost a year. I ended up in a psychiatric facility four months sober with suicidal ideations. Flashbacks of um, behaviors I was engaging in and disease were flashing back. I was still without transportation, wasn't allowed to get to -to face-to-face meetings. It was very difficult. I called Seiko, actually, um, and Kay, who's Birthday is today, so if, you, if you've ever been um, helped by Seiko, today would be a wonderful day to call and wish Kay at the front office um happy birthday. Um, as Bill Stewart reminded us, Nashvilleians today, she's plenty nine today, but Kay helped me. She um, pointed me to um, the Daily Reprieve so I could get podcasts, she pointed me toward our phone fellowship. Um, of which this is one of the wonderful meetings. And so she got me connected, even though I'm here in Nashville, the international headquarters, and couldn't get to meetings. And she was such a godsend. And that tethered me through till a few months later, I could get to -to face-to-face meetings. And I continued working my steps just with my sponsor over the phone. And by that fall, I could get to uh, -to face-to-face meetings and got connected with there as a solution group. And my life radically changed by that fall when I still hadn't been allowed to see my children. I lost guardianship of them. I was covered over in shame. And my pivot point was when I discovered the fourth step shame inventory, which had been lost to at least our local fellowship since the 2012 International Convention. And and. Thankfully, God just brought it to me. I started listening to old recordings and I put the inventory on a matrix and I put, brought it to my sponsor and I started working it. And for the first time, I realized that I had never invited God into my shame. And I had been using my shame to judge myself and wall other people off. I had even been using. The fact that I thought out pain and bondage and sexual harm as a way of justifying myself and saying, well, of course I know that I'm, of course I know that I'm a horrible sexaholic. Don't you see what I did? So go ahead and try to judge me. Don't you know how awful I already know I am? And once I invited God into my shame and allowed Him to show me that I am no better, I am no worse. I am on an eye level with all other people. The shame just lifted. And so now I am so blessed. I teach, I teach, um, and lead shame inventory workshops for my home group and. And all around Nashville and on Skype meetings. And, and so a huge part of my life today is that I do not have my children back. But if I had my kids back, I don't know that I'd be able to give back SA. And I've worked my way back into the career that I thought I had lost. I am, I love my job I am a single sexaholic, but I'm soberly dating, and that's, that's just amazing. There are brothers in this fellowship who I have healthy brotherly relationships with that I never knew I could have. I have relationships with women that have grown me into a strong, confident female that I I never knew this part of me. I can work through conflict in a way that I never knew I could. And and to me, I don't regret a single thing that ever happened to me. I don't even regret that I have the disease. I don't regret my father walking out on us. I don't regret my sexual abuse. I don't regret a single act on my sexual inventory because without those then no relationship with God and no essay and those are the ways that I contribute back to life today it's not through my career it's not through the motivational talks I give it's not through my leadership at work I get all those things because of essay and I guess if I were to say one final thing is that what I've learned to do most importantly today is not compare myself to other people is to compare myself to who I was. Uh, And that's, uh, that's from where I get my joy. So I think that's all I know. Thanks, Jen.